Welcome to the inaugural edition of the Dickinson Law Review Podcast. Our guest for this episode is Gary Gilden. Gary Gilden is professor of law at Penn State Dickinson Law School. At Dickinson, Gilden serves as the director of the Center for Public Interest Law and Advocacy. He also serves as the Ann G. Miller and Honorable G. Thomas Chair in Advocacy at Dickinson Law. Gilden has also served as the Dean of the Law School from the years 2013 to 2019 and is currently an Emeritus Dean. Professor Gilden graduated with his Bachelor of Arts degree from the University of Wisconsin in 1973 with honors. Following his undergraduate education, Gilden graduated with his JD from the Stanford University Law School in 1976, where he graduated with the Order of the Coif. Gary Gilden joined Dickinson Law's faculty in 1979 after graduating law school and spending three years as a civil litigator in Chicago, Illinois. Gilden has also been awarded the prestigious Fulbright Grant, where he served as a visiting chair in international humanitarian law at the University of Ottawa. During his sabbaticals from Dickinson Law, Gilden has also served as law clerk to the Honorable Sylvia H. Rambo, United States District Court Judge for the Middle District of Pennsylvania a legend at Dickinson Law and the Middle District. Professor Gilden has argued before the United States Supreme Court in the case Bowen versus Roy, and before the Third Circuit in the racial profiling case, Raphael Christopher versus Frederick Nestle Road et al. At Dickinson Law, Professor Gilden teaches classes focusing on trial advocacy, civil liberties litigation, protection of individual rights under state constitutions, advanced persuasion, and the First Amendment. Gilden has published or authored or co-authored more than 40 books, book chapters, articles, CLE publication chapters, and book reviews. We are very pleased to welcome Professor Gilden to the podcast. Welcome, everyone, to the inaugural episode of the Dickinson Law Review Podcast. The guest for this edition, as mentioned in the introduction, is Professor Gary Gilden, and in our conversation, we discuss state constitutional remedies, about which Professor Gilden has written in an article in the past, and the importance of this area, especially in light of the Supreme Court's recent jurisprudence in several areas. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Professor Gilden. Uh, welcome to the Dickinson Law Review Podcast. I'm your host, uh, Nick Ganano, and our guest this week is Professor Gary Gilden, uh, who we are very, very, very pleased to have on, uh, on this edition of the podcast. Uh, welcome, Professor Gilden. How are you doing on this uh, lovely, lovely day in Carlisle, Pennsylvania? Right. Not only a lovely day in Carlisle, but anytime you're interacting with students at Dickinson Law, it's a wonderful day. Uh, absolute pleasure to have you here, sir. The first question I have is something that I've heard you talk about before, and that's in the federal constitution, there are no remedies, I guess. Right, no, so great. <clears throat> I'll um, insult everyone's intelligence by breaking this into a two-step process. You can be as law school, as you know, Nick, the, every class focuses 99.9% .9 or more on the <clears throat> definition of the underlying substantive right, you know, and say for our catch-all course in remedies that sort of kick, the cans kick down the road for some future knowledge on that point. <clears throat> so our common law course is you know, focus on what rights does the US Constitution provide or not provide? Very important question. But these courses do not address, and if your rights have been violated, then what happens? <clears throat> and so 
when we address these questions, both under the federal constitution and state constitutions, we have to do both steps in the analysis. So as you pointed out, we look if we had a violation of the U.S. Constitution and look to the Constitution itself and say, well, what happens? Where's the cause of action? Where's the remedy? It would be silent on that, you know, save for the guarantee of habeas corpus and you know, textually the you know, right to just compensation if private property is taken for public purposes. But for, you know, the conventional view of civil liberties, free speech, unreasonable search and seizures and the like, there's nothing prescribed as to cause of action or remedy in the Constitution itself. And in, in, in following up on that, um, some some of the remedies that we have uh, in constitutional law, like the Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Amendments, those are not like um, uh, prescribed by the Constitution. They're judicially created, like the um, exclusionary rule in the Fourth Amendment context. So, like those are court made. Um, is that is that a no? That's true? right. <clears throat> you know, and to the extent the law students have encountered that, it's likely, as your question implied, in a criminal procedure class where. You know, if a search or seizure was done without probable cause or an exception or without a warrant or an exception, the remedy is to preclude the government from using it in the prosecution. But that's not a constitutionally prescribed remedy. That was the U.S. Supreme Court determining that as a means of deterring those violations, we are going to essentially legislate exclusion. Uh, So that's exactly spot on. On the the criminal side of the occasion, it's absolutely simply been implied. Mm Um, and sort of, sort of the more of where we're getting into the topic of what we're here for today is the statutory uh, remedies that are created by Congress or state legislatures, I guess. But in, in terms of the federal context, the the remedy would be Section 1983. So I'd say yes or no. So you know we're flipping over from. So what happens if it's not a person accused of a crime who might be content mm-hmm. to have the evidence excluded? What happens if I'm an innocent person who's right to free speech has been violated, whose house has been searched without uh, the reasonableness requirement being satisfied, and I suffered personal injury or property injury? What if I'm a victim of police misconduct, use of unreasonable force? You know, the Constitution will guarantee me those rights, says nothing with respect to what happens next. If it was a, by the way, if it was a federal government agent who did these things, we're still in the land of no statutory cause mm-hmm. of action. The, you, U.S. Congress has never created any cause of action or remedies against a federal governmental official or the federal governmental entity when they violate the Constitution. Uh, the, by, by contrast, and I think this is where you're headed because I know you were in the class that took it, you know, in 1871, in light of uh, rampant misconduct by state officials by allowing the Klan to simply run free, Congress created a statutory cause of action where a person acting under color of state law violates a right under the federal constitution, you know, codified at 42 U.S. Code Section 1983, which is why it's become popularized as you know, a Section 1983 claim. But what you're doing is saying the right violated was the U.S. Constitution. The cause of action and remedy is created by this one-paragraph-long 1871 statute if it was a state or local official that violated my rights. Mm-hmm. In, in, in Section 93, and then the following sections, 84, 85, 86, I think, up to 88 or something like that, those, those comprise the totality of like, what the remedies uh, you can get out of like, a constitutional violation, I think. Is that, is that correct also? For generic, what I would call it, not if there's any such thing, for generic violations, I know there have been particularized mm-hmm. later legislation for sure. acts of discrimination, acts of employment discrimination. But if you're talking about 
the, the most general approach that would apply across the board to constitutional violations, Section 1983 is the cause of action that Congress prescribed. And, and just to uh, kind of cover, cover, cover up a hole that we're leaving here uh, unsaid, the federal agent, if a federal agent violated the federal constitution, the implied action would be a Bivens claim? Is, is, is that right, and probably a topic of a whole different podcast. Right. We're not yes. going to go there. <laughs> Congress did, I mean, the U.S. Supreme Court did recognize in the Bivens case that you know, for a person whose Fourth Amendment rights have been violated, you know, it's a it's implied cause of action for damages or nothing. And so they essentially said, we as the court are creating a cause of action for violation of the Fourth Amendment. There were two post-Bivens cases that expanded it out to, I think, the Fifth and Eighth Amendment. So early on, it looked like it was going to be the implied cause of action equivalent of Section 1983. In the past five or ten years, the U.S. Supreme Court has determined you know, determine this as a discredited, disfavored remedy. So there's uh, very little, if anything, left of this Bivens remedy. And again, without any sort of con congressional engagement, uh, you may be left without a remedy. Um, and in, in terms of the, the 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 rights that are being violated, I guess that that moves us into the next phase of our conversation today, which would be the um, the individual rights that are perhaps different in the federal constitution versus the state constitution um, and it, because they are not, not necessarily the same, correct? No, that's right. And again, to repeat uh, what I've said before, <clears throat> anytime you have to really ask two questions, is there a difference with respect to the right that's protected by the state constitution versus the federal constitution? And secondly, does the state constitution as interpreted by the state Supreme Court or its legislature offer different remedies than the Section 1983 action would offer. Um, and, and, and kind of the kind of a interesting tool uh, of interpreting all this is the notion that the federal constitution is the floor uh, that uh, rights can g not go below, but um, the state constitution is sort of the ceiling where you, I mean, you can go as high as you want almost, I guess, it, 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 theoretically, I guess, uh, perhaps a poor explanation, but it, is that a notion that is, correct in your view? No, it's a correct notion. <clears throat> and the reason uh, there's difficulty explaining it is if you go through the law school curriculum at most every law school and you're teaching, having courses in the, quote, constitutional law field, they almost exclusively are dealing with the federal constitution. You know, schools are trying to teach national law. There's a, you know, set of national law that applies across the board regardless of where your students are going. But certainly in the popular press, at least until maybe three months ago or four months ago, if people are talking about constitutional rights, the assumption is the U.S. Constitution. Turns out that you know state constitutions are a wholly independent source of rights. Uh, you know, state constitutions for places like Pennsylvania were adopted before there was even a, a Bill of Rights of the U.S. Constitution. So the first Pennsylvania Constitution was 1776. Bill of Rights was not ratified till 1791. So in Pennsylvania, we had our own constitution for, if my math is correct, 15 years. But even more dramatically, the U.S., you know, the Bill of Rights, albeit ratified in 1791, none of those rights applied to limit state action until the 14th Amendment was ratified in 1868. So if you will, from the founding of the country until 1868, the only constitutional rights we had were those under state constitutions. Then with the uh, adoption of the 14th Amendment, and frankly not until the early 1900s did the 14th Amendment have any legs, 
uh, under the Supremacy Clause, that certainly remains the supreme law of the land, that is no state could afford fewer rights to its citizenry than the U.S. Constitution prescribes. But you know, as a nod to the appropriate independence of those state constitutions, state constitutions can provide greater rights than the baseline, or as you put it, the floor of the U.S. Constitution. Mm-hmm. And there's no pr- supremacy clause violation because they're, they're not doing less than what's prescribed. They're just using their power under their independent charter to give their citizens, not citizens of other states, their citizens greater protections. Uh, and, and, and that sort of gets into the question of state constitutional remedies, I guess, um, because if the um, if the floor is zero because there is no statutory um, federal um, or excuse me, excuse me, no constitutional remedies offered at the in the federal constitution, there's no there is no prohibition of having state constitutions have remedies as well uh, buried within them, I guess. Is, is that sort of. Um, Right. This, you know, the state could provide <clears throat> greater remedies for violations of its constitution. A state supreme court could inter- could create an implied cause of action uh, to provide a damage action for violations of its state constitution mm-hmm. without doing any violence to the supremacy clause. And, of course, that would not be available for violations of the federal constitution because the state court or the state legislature has no power over those Right. And in, in that context, uh, I guess you could have the textual constitution, state constitutional remedy as a, a possibility, and then you could have the state Supreme Court coming up with a uh, judicially created, uh, similar to like a Bivens equivalent, sort of, uh, at the state level, and then, and then sort of the, um, the legislati- legislative um, remedy that would have to be created in a manner similar to Section 1983, but... Um, the question then turns to, um, which is what you wrote in your article about uh, this in the Penn State Law Review, redressing deprivations of rights secured by straight constitu- state constitutions outside the sh- shadow of this Supreme Court's constitutional remedies jurisprudence. A little bit of a mouthful, I guess, in the title, <laughs> uh, but yeah, absolutely fascinating article. Um, and sort of, sort of your argument in that is, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, that you shouldn't necessarily incorporate the things from Section 1983 into statutory remedies at the state level, right? Right. So to, you know, to dissemble this, we're going to have to take three steps. You know, step number one is we'd have to understand you know, why we would find a greater right in the first place under our state constitution. And then we'd have to say, what's wrong with the Section 1983 remedy? Why would we even have any need to look outside that? So if, if we could, let's go a step at a time. Sure. So with respect yeah. to the, the rights, you know, the, the, the world changed. The world of constitutional law changed. It was headed that way but I think had a real uh, absolute explosion in the last week of June of this past year when in a trilogy of cases, the U.S. Supreme Court essentially said in determining what uh, uh, the U.S. Constitution means, it means what was the state of play legally uh, at the time that amendment was adopted. So the case that received most attention appropriately was the Dobbs case overruling Roe versus Wade, where the court held you know, the substantive due process right upon which the whole Roe decision and its protections rested uh, was unfounded because abortion was not a protected right uh, when the Constitution was adopted, you know, with the only question being, do we look to 1791 or do we look to 1868? That received the greatest headlines, you know, but uh, similar was the decision in New York State Rifle versus Bruin, where the court essentially said, and interpreting what the Second Amendment means, 
we have to take a look at you know what rights to carry weapons existed uh, at the time the Second Amendment was adopted, and even in a less publicized case for this proposition, Kennedy versus Bremerton School District, also the last week of June, the court said effectively the same thing with respect to the Establishment Clause. That is, what the Establishment Clause prohibits government from doing is what was it prohibited from doing in either 1791 or 1868. So essentially, you know, the U.S. constitutional rights are frozen in time as reflecting a state of play in 1791 or 1868. So there was a renewed need, renewed need to look for broader protection because, first of all, the existing protections could be undermined as in Roe by the court saying, listen, you, the, the foundational analysis was wrong, so we may see further retraction of rights, but certainly no expansion of rights to modern times. So there's an increased need, new inflection point, to look to state constitutions for greater protection in light of the not only the trend line, you know, the existing approach to constitutional interpretation by the present Supreme Court. Uh, sure. In, in, in terms of the trend line, I guess, uh, to track sort of the, the, the civil liberties litigation from the beginning, I guess, um, you, 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 um, I, I've taken a class of yours, and you, you began the sort of the story with Monroe versus Pape in the 60s, and during the Warren Court, it sort of expanded and then kind of reached sort of a high water mark around the time of Monell, I guess, and kind of Ever since then, it's kind of been in a state of uh, retraction, almost, it, in culminating in the in the events of June, late June, twenty twenty two. You know. <laughs> so, if you will, you've taken us into step two. It's saying, you know, even if even if uh, the court were to find a <coughs> right was violated under its modern interpretation, what uh, what remedies does Section nineteen eighty three provide? You know, for <coughs> every student in every law school who took a torts class. The basic notion is if somebody violates your rights, the, <clears throat> the person who violated the standard of care <clears throat> is personally responsible, and if they were acting in the scope of employment, so too is the employer. So one would expect that the natural outcome of a Section 1983 action is that if a state or local official violated my constitutional rights, that official would be liable personally for damages, and as a matter of spreading the risk of loss and ensuring the victims compensated, so too would be the employer, the state or local government. And you know, that was you know, what's happened, however, from the year 1961 when Section 1983 was given greater legs, has been a situation where right now uh, state governments are never liable under Section 1983 because the 11th Amendment to the United States Constitution, the court has interpreted to preclude suits against states in federal court. Local governments as an employer are rarely liable because even though there is ostensibly uh, liability for actions that constitute policy, the way the Supreme Court has interpreted when does an action represent municipal pol policy has eliminated almost every conceivable case, and therefore your only remedy is available against the individual officer. And then the third strand of remedies defeating doctrine, the doctrine of qualified immunity, the court has essentially said an individual official is not gonna be held liable unless their conduct violated quote, clearly established constitutional rights, which the court has interpreted regressively to essentially require this happened before in a virtually factually identical way in a jurisdiction that controls this officer's authority. So you put those three doctrines together, and even though the right has been violated, the risk of loss doesn't fall on the individual official who violated the right, does not fall on the entity. Our most precious rights in society, constitutional rights, uh, the victim is left without a damage remedy. And then so, you know, fourth 
killer line of uh, doctrine, if you decided to seek equitable relief to at least get some modicum of you know redress, the court has interpreted the Article Three standing requirement to say you know th- there's no power, there's no case or controversy unless you can show it's going to happen to you again in a non-hypothetical way. So unless you're an institutionalized person, you know, the, the seminal case was the Lyons case. This gentleman was stopped uh, classically, you know, in terms of the profiling rule for a taillight out, found himself on the ground unconscious because a chokehold was applied, sued alleging that was excessive force in violation of the Constitution, and with respect to the equitable relief, the court said you're not entitled to enjoin these uh, essentially life-endangering chokeholds because you can't show it's going to happen to you again. Um, in what you're describing to me sort of seems like in addition to um, sort of a, restri- a retraction of individual rights culminating in the, in the you know, in the trifecta of decisions, uh, Dobbs, mm-hmm. Bruin, et cetera, um, there has also been sort of a retraction in the remedies jurisprudence as well. So as it stands today, a plaintiff would have to navigate both the – sort of a retraction in rights and a retraction in remedies when it comes to federal um, federal remedies, I guess. So that sort of leads us to the uh, the problem at hand and the task at hand, in, in, your, opinion, I, in your opinion, I guess, uh, that the resolution lies in, in, in state constitutions and state remedies. Yes. And um, sort of following up on those, those questions, or those topics, I guess, um, the, question, the question then remains, um, in the absence of these two um, bedrock principles, I guess, of constitutional law and uh, remedial constitutional law, um, what, what is um, what are what are plaintiffs left with in the absence of those two um, areas? You know, it's a good a good big takeaway for takeaway for budding lawyers generally, which is you know you can talk about from a theoretical perspective what would be the institutionally most reliable protectorate of individual rights against government. And you might conclude that in an ideal world, as you were framing it, it ought to be the federal government. We would expect the federal constitution and federally created remedies to be true. And then as lawyers, we have to say, take a look at what is the actual state of play. So when we find ourselves in 2023 America, you've got a Supreme Court that is increasingly narrowing the scope of rights under the federal constitution and has already narrowed uh, to an extreme way, the viability of a remedy. So it would be, we'd be underrepresenting our clients as plaintiffs' lawyers if we did not say, you know, at this moment in time, this is the most effective way to go, and I have to be prepared as the citizen's lawyer to argue for rights and greater remedies, and as the government lawyer, I have to be, you know, equipped to be able to argue why the right or the remedy should not be interpreted differently. And, and to that point, uh, you are not, uh, you're not making a sort of like a long-term uh, uh, proposition as to how the like everything should be structured long-term i guess about state constitutions uh being the more um effective forever it's just kind of like a realistic look at the at the world and uh, the situation that lawyers and young lawyers face i guess going out into the world is um this is the the, the situation we're living in and this is the sort of the best way you can approach it. I guess that's sort of your argument then? Well, that's, no, I think it's not even my argument. I think it's just, you know, (laughs) it's correct. You know, after the Civil War in 1871, where the states were resisting recognizing these new equality rights, there was no question that the United States Congress thought that the states were not reliable protectorates and the state courts couldn't be trusted. And in many ways, the we saw that same journey in the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s. And in, in many ways now, even again today, you know, not every state 
um, you know, more, many states are more threats to civil liberties than they mm -hmm. are mm -hmm. protectorate. When you'd only look, you know, trying to be apolitical, just in terms of rights interpretation with respect to Florida. So, it, it would be foolish to say, you know, this is great because this is uh, in the perfect world. If we were political theorists, this is where we'd look for protections. Uh, but, you know, given we're sort of at just yet another one of these inflection points, which is that the power structures of the federal government are not reliable protectorates, and therefore we have to be trained and learn to look elsewhere. In this instance, the promise in, at this moment in time in some states for greater rights and remedies under that state's constitution. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, I, I guess it's sort of, so, sort of one of the interesting things about constitutional law and state constitutional laws, all, all the dates that, that kind of pop up over, over the course of um, everything. You mentioned 17, 1776, that's when mm -hmm. Pennsylvania's constitution was um, passed, the federal constitution in 1789, the Bill of Rights in 1791, 14th Amendment 1868, um, and you mentioned civil rights movement in the 60s. Uh, it, you, you could, I, I, looking at all those dates, you can kind of see that history is like cyclical almost, or they go, we, we as a country, we as a, a world go through like expansions, contractions, uh, that's, uh, that's normal, and I guess, um, or, or I, I shouldn't say it's normal, but it it, it happens. Um, but um, uh, and that's sort of um, where 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 it all fits in the grand scheme of things. At, the, at this present moment in time, um, uh, lawyers should utilize and and would you also advocate for legislative remedies at the state level uh, that are more expansive than? Um, at present, I guess is that something that you would be interested no, in? You know, absolutely. You know the. You know, the larger jurisprudential point that you make is, you know, what's the nature of law and is it, is it somehow objective and freed from the moment of, in time? And I think, you know, I think with your little layout showed, no, it, this obviously depends on the culture and the history you're dealing with at that time there. We're just at this point in time, rightly or wrongly, where people who represent rights claimants have to start understanding this different source of rights and remedies and by the way, it's going to require a huge educational process. You know, the state constitutions preceded the United States Constitution. Courts are still struggling to understand <clears throat> how do they get to decide something different than the United States Supreme Court because they've been essentially trained on the supremacy clause. So in, in advocating for greater rights, there's a whole educational chapter that we also happen to do as lawyers second generation issue which we're just on the cusp of which is so now what happens if the court says yes i agree with you there's a right but i don't see any any remedy prescribed by the state constitution and their default position as was true with respect to rights is why don't we look to section 1983 and of course if they look to section 1983 you know it's a pyrrhic victory on the rights because if they simply reach the same remedies decision be no liability of the state as an entity, no liability of the municipal entity, and they're going to offer a qualified immunity to the officer. So now we have to embark on an educational process as the advocate to explain to the court why it's perfectly appropriate uh, not to decide your remedies issues in the shadow of what the U.S. Supreme Court has done, and in arguing for legislation by a state legislature, why not, why we shouldn't codify that risk of misallocation process because the reasons the U.S. Supreme Court decided those decisions do not apply when we're dealing with state constitutions. And, and I, I guess sort of the natural follow-up question would be, what are some of the reasons for the Section 1983 mm -hmm. uh, taking it all the way back to 1868 and 71, I guess? Right. Well, the <clears throat> simplest of simple levels, uh, but it really doesn't answer that question, but I'll give you the better answer. 
The simple one is, you know, that's a, a federal statute that reflects the intent of the United States Congress as of 1871, uh, and you're entitled to take a fresh look, just as the U.S. Supreme Court's interpretation of the U.S. Constitution don't have any bearing on what the framers in Pennsylvania meant in 1776, so you ought to be looking at their intent. So, too, in, in crafting your remedies, should you not look there? So from a very abstract perspective, you know, you're, you're building it from the ground up, starting from a different starting point. The uh, more <coughs> the other simple answer is that every one of the U.S. Supreme Court opinions, in one way or another, expressly or implicitly was relying upon the the notion of federalism, that is, we ought to be wary in imposing remedies against state or local officials in suits in federal court because we're disrupting the balance of power. So if you will, whenever the Supreme Court entered a remedies decision deciding to afford a remedy or not, there was a weight on the side of the government scale to deny the remedy because of the federalism implications. Of course, when you move yourself into state court, there's no federalism concern. The state is policing its own so that you essentially take the weight off that scale, which means that the Supreme Court's precedence on remedy denying under Section 1983, to the extent they explicitly or implicitly reflect a concern with federalism, essentially discredit them as even persuasive precedents because they started with a skewed skewed balancing, if you will. Right. And, and to that point, I guess, um, so like this – in 1868, with the passage of the 14th Amendment uh, and the Ku Klux Klan Act and everything like that in 1871, uh, there, there were no corresponding – or well, th there was no directly corresponding concerns in 1776 in Pennsylvania. So the, the rationale um, behind all of those things at the time of the passage of the 14th Amendment, um, there was no, no need to sort of re remedy those or rectify those situations, I guess, um, at the time. Um, that's a great question. My guess is they, you know, this, you're sort of at the birth of the birth of the Commonwealth and the birth of this new, you know, American experiment. I, I just think it was a second generation issue they hadn't really given any thought to. You know, they were just trying to come up with some sort of fundamental rights uh, that they thought you know, would apply. So I, I don't think that. I just think no one even thought of that question. Uh, you know, I think the, the way I would flip it over is that whatever the situation was in 1871 when the U.S. Congress decided to act would be of no moment in 2023 if the New Mexico legislature decided to consider creating a cause of action as they did in the wake of the you know, George Floyd tragedy. That is, they're entitled to make their own assessment of the need for deterrence, the need for compensation in a you know, world of police action and police misconduct in 2023, whatever people would have thought at the federal level in 1871 should have no bearing on that question. And therefore, the courts should not, courts and legislatures should not blindly be modeling their state constitutional remedies scheme off of whatever the United States Supreme Court did with the 1871 Congress's remedial scheme. Uh, and in terms of that, I guess the question that I was thinking of is it's more of like a straight sovereign immunity abrogation, I guess, question at that point, um, whether you can sue this state if they violate your rights. It's more of a straight-up question as opposed to dealing with all the historical implications of it all for, for states when they make these legislations. Is that correct? Or? I suppose if I, was, <clears throat> if I was in Illinois trying to say the state of Illinois should be liable when one of its police officers you know, uses excessive force and the <clears throat> government said, well, look, under Section 1983, states aren't suable, the answer would be, well, that was because of the 11th Amendment is about suits in, in federal court. So that has absolutely no bearing on should we be able to sue Illinois in state court. The issue then becomes not a 11th, it becomes state sovereign immunity. And then you know, the argument would be, 
can the state immunize itself from liability for rights it has no discretion to violate? Um, in, is there an answer that uh, <laughs> some states have provided for that question, I guess? Uh, I think the states are, uh, are mulling that one over because I think there's such a long tradition of state sovereign immunity for common law wrongs that they've sort of been socialized into the immunization. But then if you ask the question, Yes, but these are rights that are not common law. These are rights that essentially precede the existence of the state. If the state has no discretion to violate it, aren't you undermining the right when the state immunizes itself? So it's, you know, it's a mind-bending question that sort of shakes at some sort of foundational doctrine. So, Yes, and um, uh, it, perhaps those are questions that every state should be asking themselves and lawyers should be asking themselves in those states, I guess, and that's sort of a... Um, uh, sort of a way forward, I guess. It, it, I find all that absolutely fascinating, what, what you're uh, uh, saying there. And in, in terms of wrapping up, I guess, what are, the, what, what are some of the takeaways that the, the average listener, the average uh, law student, the average, um, the average uh, person, e even somebody who's not even related to the law in any way, what, what are so, sort of some, some of the takeaways that you would uh, propose uh, moving forward? Right, so let's let's try to limit it to two. First of all, let's understand we're asking a, a 2023 utilitarian question, not a abstract political theory question. Again, the different question is how should the world work? The utilitarian question is in the year 2023, the way the world works with respect to constitutional protection of individual liberty in the United States as of this moment mandates that we be thinking about state constitutions as a source of rights as well as remedies afforded that are different than those decided by the U.S. Supreme Court. You know, takeaway number two is that, so you know, what are the courts going to do with this? You know, the, the, the power of the court to get these issues right is going to depend upon the uh, ability of the lawyers to properly educate the court. And I mean both lawyers for the rights claimant and rights for the government. Uh, again, as we started, everybody's common law courses in law school is federal constitutional law. So it's really, in my view, incumbent upon law schools to recognize the, the moment, which is likely to be enduring for the early or full careers of their set of graduates, to say we need to equip our students with the analytical skills, theoretical and practical, to argue whether or not a state constitution affords greater rights protection, and to, if so, what remedies ought to be afforded as a matter of original analysis outside the shadow, as the title of the article indicated, of the U.S. Supreme Court's remedies jurisprudence. And, and what what you just uh, articulated sort of tracks with, um, I guess, how how you are um, uh, how you approach uh, education. I guess almost in, at Dickinson Law, you you teach classes on advocacy. You teach uh, how to be an effective lawyer. You teach classes on civil liberties litigation. How to be an effective civil liberties litigator. Um, and and I, it's all absolutely fascinating. And you're you know, I, I think that's a extremely relevant topic for uh, law schools across the country. I guess and even your average layperson. Right. Well, just to be fair, I, <coughs> I think I'm trying to teach the lawyers for the governments the same set of skills. So that's you know, true. My, my that's usual true. goal, my hopeful goal, which I probably fail at, is that you know, the student in the class doesn't know when I, whether I'm rapidly left-wing or rapidly right-wing because the whole idea is whoever you represent, you have to be able to recognize the other side's arguments. And if you don't, you know, you're not prepared, essentially, to answer the court's hard questions. Right. And uh, that, that gets to the heart of... Uh, being a lawyer almost, and that's that I guess would be a good topic for another podcast. Correct, correct. But but uh, that being said, um, uh, it was a real pleasure having you here, uh, Dean Gilden. I'm 
it was an absolute pleasure for me to talk to you, get pick your brain on some of these uh, finer points of law or and see even some of the bigger questions of law. Um, and thanks for coming on. That was a pleasure. I enjoyed it as well. Thanks.